and welcome to another episode of This is HCD. I'm your host, Chi Ryan, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Derek Horn, a designer at Beardwood & Co., a New York-based branding agency focused on design, strategy, and innovation. He's also a volunteer director at Out for Undergrad, a non-profit that helps LGBTQ undergraduate students reach their full potential. Derek recently wrote a fascinating article that caught my eye called In Praise of an Undesigned World for the online magazine Dialine. In the article, Derek discussed his discovery of the undesigned world in New York City. Hidden beneath the glossy brands, bright lights and shiny advertisements, there are layers of design by necessity that began to inspire his work. Welcome to the show, Derek. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here. What inspired you to become a designer? So I was born and raised in Syracuse, New York. A place that has a very hard name for us (laughs) Aussies because we're like, How do you say that? Yes. (laughs) Uh, So like many designers, I grew up having a passion for drawing and painting and all these other fine arts. But I also had parents who rightfully wanted me to have a job and wanted me to think about that as I thought about my future. So when I applied, went to look for colleges, I was pretty dead set on getting out of Syracuse. I'd spent there 18 years there. I wanted to see what else was new in the world. But lo and behold, I applied to Syracuse University's communications design program and ended up there. It was a great, great experience. We learned about building brands kind of from the ground up with a really entrepreneurial spirit. But one thing at the time I kind of disliked about being in Syracuse is what I perceived to be lack of a, a thriving design culture and kind of creative space. In hindsight, I realized that that stuff was always there and I kind of ignored it. But I was always, I'd take bus trips to New York City for the weekend and take pictures, fill up my camera roll of all sorts of cool things I saw and bring that back to Syracuse and put that in my my design projects. But I had this moment after I started working where I started being in New York. I moved here after I graduated in 2015. I started seeing all of these examples of designed by non-designers that really started to open my eyes and appreciate these other examples of creativity around me. Before we talk about the undesigned world, why don't you tell us a little bit more about Out for Undergrad? Sure. So uh, Out for Undergrad is a nonprofit that's dedicated to helping LGBTQ undergrad students reach their full potential. And we do that by every year organizing four industry-specific conferences, business, tech, engineering, and marketing for students that are interested in careers in those spaces. So queer students can apply to attend one of our conferences, and if they're accepted, the organization covers all travel and lodging costs for them, so uh, location and financial situations aren't a barrier to entry. So at the conferences, students learn about like career opportunities in these various spaces, oftentimes things they don't learn in school. They learn how they can bring their most authentic selves to the workplace, and they're also connected with mentors that have done all this stuff before and can give guidance to them. Uh, And our conference teams, we raise money from sponsors from some of the world's biggest companies and agencies, and we we build a a class of students. It's really diverse and bright and exceptional. And then our team plans a full weekend of programming and activities for them to do. Where can people learn more about Out for Undergrad? So you can go to outforundergrad.org and you can learn how to become involved as a student a volunteer, or if you'd like your company to get involved 
as a sponsor in Recruiter. I feel like there needs to be a pure design track, but that's just me being <laughs> me. Um, awesome. So let's get back to the topic at hand. Tell us about when you started to notice this very unusual phenomena, or actually maybe it's a usual phenomena, of the undesigned world. So New York City is a really big, beautiful place full of so many different things. And my office is in Soho. So every time I go out on lunch, there's always a new pop-up shop, a new example of street art, a new, just about every, new store, just about everything, like what is considered as like an example of professional creativity, but also these so many other kind of gritty, raw expressions in very human expressions that kind of coexist with it. So one of the first examples of this was one day I was out on my lunch break and I passed this street meat cart and there was... I love just, by the way, I just love the term street meat. It's like mystery meat. Ooh, what, what might it be today? Um, and I was looking at the menu and one of the items was fish over rice. And the image that used, was used to represent this was a bed of rice and whoever designed this literally cut out an image of a, a fish that might have even been alive and they just kind of imposed it over this this rice image. I'm glad it wasn't Nemo. <laughs> um, and it really got me thinking, like, somewhere along the way of that cart making it onto this street corner, somebody sat down and created that image in the best way that they knew how to. Um, and it, it started turning wheels that... It goes beyond that, obviously, and every day there's millions of people around the world that are making these design choices out of necessity, whether it's to communicate information, earn a living, or make the world a better place. And honestly, it's been happening since the dawn of time, and even as far back as cave paintings. And it's funny because it immediately reminds, it just reminds me of this one thing, this very memorable thing. So there's a car park, uh, what do you call a car park here? Parking lot. Parking lot. Parking garage? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, it's automated. You go in, you park, you go back in and there's a machine and you have to put your ticket in and pay. And um, it's still there today. I mean, if, if literally if we went to Melbourne today, I could take you there. The machine is covered in notes and stickers and handwritten messages about how to use the machine. And I think that's really f- interesting because sometimes it's out of necessity, but sometimes it's as a result of bad design. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and like once like the wheels started turning for this, I started seeing so many other examples around me. So it's everything from uh, somebody in your apartment building that needs to get rid of furniture and they may, they whip up a quick sign and put it in the elevator, or the stairway. Uh, it's little mom and pop bakeries that are creating their own packaging with their, their own branding on it. Um, and another major one is uh, around the time when I moved to New York, it was kind of coincided with Trump's rise to power and I attended a lot of rallies and protests and I saw so many amazing and creative examples of protest signs and artwork that you can tell that people weren't dwelling on them they were very kind of pure and uh, potent pieces of design that weren't too hung up on being perfect but were very effective in their communication. Do you have any examples that really stick out in your mind as just blowing your mind when you've seen them? One of my absolute favorite places in New York City is uh, Astor Hairstylist in the East Village. And it's this massive underground, very no-frills barbershop that has been around for over 70 years. 
Uh, and I think it really, I think it was made popular by artists like Keith Haring and Andy Warhol and hundreds of other celebrities have been there and they have their photos of them on the walls. Uh, and you walk in and there's this incredible sign that says, we speak your language, Spanish, Italian, French, German, Polish, Romanian, Russian, Greek, Farsi, Portuguese, and even a little English. And there's probably about, I'd say maybe 20 to 30 barber stations and each of the stylists kind of take over that space and decorate it with uh, everything from the expected kind of hairstyle photos. Uh, but many of them kind of use it as a spa- like a canvas to express the other things they're passionate about, like stickers or family photos. And in some cases, some of them have their own artwork. Uh, there is actually this really great mini documentary called uh, Big Mike Takes Lunch that was made by uh, New York Nico that shows that the general manager, how on his lunch break, he goes in the back room and, and paints these really beautiful wild paintings. Wow. You know, it reminds me, it reminds me so much and you're tattooed too. So you know what I mean when I say this, it reminds me so much of when you go to a tattoo studio and each tattooer has their own booth and they, they have their tools and they have their own ways of setting up that are unique to them, but then they decorate their spaces in a way that represents them. And interestingly enough, um, it also sort of reminds me of how there's been this resurgence into old techniques of sign writing. I definitely in Williamsburg, because obviously it's kind of hipsterville here, but also in Melbourne because it's the home of the hipsters. You know, handmade sign writing is huge. It's become this this massive thing. And so it's it's funny how it's this ontological, this cyclical type of design where we go from high-end gloss to lo-fi. And actually it reminds me of something else too. There's a, a butcher shop here in Williamsburg called Marlowe and Sons. I hope, I, I hope oh, it's Marlon Sons or Marlo and Daughters. Marlon and Sons, there's two of them. There's one that's a restaurant. And um, and it's a, it's interesting because it's not so much design that's the resurgence, but mm-hmm. the resurgence of a lost trade mm-hmm. in butchering, you know, um, with all these young people, young, hip, cool people butchering the meat in the butcher store and people lining up to buy their meat the way that you would have maybe 50 years ago in a butcher store. Um, this resurgence of grassroots artisanal type artisanal yeah type things so that's a good point to ask how do you think that this affects the digital world so very very interesting question um (laughs) and it's one that i've definitely thought about quite a bit um just because working at a branding agency i definitely have such a respect for like the anonymous and very thankless craft that like goes into design and bringing designed experiences to the world. But being in, in Soho and seeing all these really glossy storefronts and retail experiences, all these, it's funny. I, I, I make a joke all the time about how pretty much every new pop-up store or retail space in Soho, they just throw a neon sign on the wall and they, they uh, <laughs> think that they'll attract millennials. And, and even even things to the the ads on the subway for all these kind of new direct to consumer brands, and they have their same kind of geometric sans serif logo types. It's like so many things; they almost start to blend together, but at the same time, feel like they're meant to target you with kind of a pinpoint precision on Instagram or uh, in the digital space. And I definitely think that designers 
we definitely hold a very valuable place in society. Um, we can bring clarity to chaos and really consider a user's journey from beginning to end. I like to say that if you design the screen, you control the machine, but that's a different story. Right. <laughs> um, and I have to say that I think that professional designers, when we sit down and put pen to paper or cursor to screen, if we're not so lucky, I know that it's easy to turn to so many of the same sources for inspiration, be it Pinterest or Tumblr or the, the same set of design blogs for your inspiration. But what I, I feel that that does sometimes is it creates this echo chamber where the same types of ideas are kind of being regurgitated and, and kind of recycled. Well, in digital, you only have to, it's so obvious because the patterns have just become right. so same, same. Right. It's almost like so many, uh, I think there are these kind of revolutionary brands that have almost kind of cracked the code, so to speak. And I think that there's so many other brands that are popping up. They're kind of, oh, me too. I want to be the Uber of XYZ or the Netflix of XYZ. And while I think that the, there's so many great models and new platforms that have been created, everything kind of starts to, it gets to a point where things start to blend together and almost start to feel a little bland. Well, try it. it's funny because, you know, moving here to New York, we had to buy a mattress. And looking at all the different mattress companies, you know, Casper, Kita, Avocado, Pineapple, <laughs> Banana, I don't know what, what they're all called, but they all kind of look the same. And it's very hard to differentiate between buying one mattress online and another mattress online. And I work in experience design and, and I like to think of it like this. The experience is the delivery of the brand promise. And if we're talking about mattresses... <laughs> well, the promise really only only gets delivered when you lay down on the thing right. and you have a good night's sleep. So if the if all the brands are the same, mm-hmm. it's a little it's a little hard to differentiate between that before you actually get the product. Right. And I think that there's this huge pivot towards so many brands trying to position themselves to be lifestyle brands. Like I think even a couple months ago, I read this article about how Chipotle is trying to reposition themselves to be more of a lifestyle brand. And I think that there's something I kind of laugh at that just because sometimes I think that like you can make a really good burrito and it's a really good burrito. And that's like a really great thing to be proud of. You don't really need to be anything more than that. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned that considering the, the fiasco that has followed Gillette's, Yes. TV ad, you know, because after all, a razor is just a razor. And I'm not sure that right. every brand has to have a position on political movements. You can just have really good razors. Right. And I think that it's a really tricky balance because I think that I, I personally don't think that that Gillette campaign was successful just because it kind of browbeats people into correcting their action. I think I read a piece that was like, for centuries, Gillette is bringing you this product that's really great and serves you, but all of a sudden you're supposed to stop on a dime and change your behavior because the brand's telling you to. And I I totally support the message about uh, toxic masculinity. I just think that it was delivered in a way that was very heavy-handed and perhaps did some damage rather than good in the long run. The the message is important. Mm -hmm. The medium, they made a mistake I think. Um, But personally, you know, when it comes down to it, like I said, what did Gillette do? They make things that help people remove their hair. And and whilst I can appreciate that what they were trying to do, they sort of missed out on, as I said, you know, the experience delivering on the brand promise. 
the promise that I think people expect from Gillette is make good products that help me remove my hair. Right. N- not necessarily help me be, well, you know what, help me be a better person. But, you know, there is a fine line between those two things. Right. And I think that an example of a brand that's really done that well in the past few years is Axe. I think that they're kind of been historically perceived as this very bro-y, macho brand. Uh, I think people think of the body spray like clogging up a middle school locker room. But I think they've kind of really expanded their definition of masculinity to be much more inclusive and positive. They put out this really great spot a couple years ago. I think it was about finding your magic. And they showcased so many different types of expressions of masculinity that were positive. Oh, I think I remember. And I think think that there's so much more power in showing positive examples and kind of holding that up on a pedestal as something to aspire to rather than taking this kind of finger-wagging stance that a lot of people just flinch at and and turn the other way. I digress. Uh, (laughs) um, So how has the undesigned world inspired your own practice? I think that oftentimes when you get a brief, you can sit down, think about it, sketch. And rather, I think rather than obsess about what you think the right words or typography or any sort of expression in what the client wants to see, I think that there's something to be said about trusting your gut at a very visceral level. Is it a human being first and foremost? And what your kind of initial communication instincts tell you. And then from there, you build it out. And and obviously not all of those things are going to be valuable, but I think it's just kind of centering yourself a little bit and approaching these problems as a human rather than... uh, I think some people can carry the the title of designer as though uh, it's a very lofty one. Yeah, look, it's something that I definitely personally came up against when I was younger, that that design was something that you did that belonged to you. You mm-hmm. know, it, it was very ego-driven and, and and a lot of design still is today. I mean, right. not without naming names, architecture can be quite can be quite ego-driven. Right. Um, but design ultimately is not for you. It's for someone else. It's for whoever right. you're communicating to, who you're interacting with. And if there's one thing that I took away from your article, it's that often designers, especially you know, those of us who consider ourselves to be human-centred designers, we go out and we do research and it's a little bit not deep enough. Mm-hmm. And you're going out, you're talking to people and you're listening to what they say but you're not necessarily seeing what's really going on. You're not observing deeply mm-hmm. enough. And in your article you observe something that was fundamentally human, this act of doing something out of necessity and you know, maybe that's something to take to your own practice as a designer, for me certainly, is to be more aware of what people are doing out of necessity. Right. And I think that at the end of the day, it comes down to respecting the ability of the ways that people communicate, regardless of their ability. And obviously, I think the results of that run the range from beautiful to ugly to clumsy to awkward to thoughtful. Uh, but as designers, we we can help connect the dots for people. And rather than kind of turning our nose up at some of those more naive examples of communication, I think we can learn a lot from them and at the same time offer our advice and services to make them more beautiful or potent. You know, it's it's interesting because I am imagining a situation where a designer is asked to redesign the meat cart 
mm-hmm. for the operator. Right. And the designer comes along and creates this set of concepts of these fancy meat carts <laughs> and doesn't really get the, the owner of the cart involved and doesn't mm-hmm. ask those questions about what it really needs to be. When in reality, the meat cart operator is the one who knows their customers the best. They know their business. And like you said, we're designers, we're design experts. We can connect those dots. But without getting those people involved in the process, you're going to have a disconnect. And that's where – maybe that's where the disconnect is happening with brands like Gillette. Definitely. One of the things at Beardwood that we do that I think is a really great part of the creative process is we do what's called a a visual creative brief. And it's basically an exercise where our team gathers so many different examples of imagery, typography, graphics, all sorts of other things, depending on the project. And we cut them out on papers and lay them out on a table with the client. And we kind of walk through with them and select which examples that they, they think are most right for their brand. And then from there, our design team creates a mood board that is a really uh, great springboard for us to jump into the design process with. Because oftentimes a, a client can brief you and say, oh, I want this to be very modern, very clean, but those words can mean 10 different things to 10 different people. So having that shared visual foundation to start from just sets everybody up for success in the long run. How can our listeners get inspired by Undesign? What would you recommend that they do? I would say... I know this sounds very trite, but uh, put your phone away for a little bit. Go walk outside, even even just right outside your door in your immediate neighborhood. Pay attention to the little details around you that you might just blow past every day on your way to work or wherever you have to go. Because it's very easy to get in kind of a tunnel tunnel vision and ignore all the little nuances and details around you. And I think from there, like once you start seeing them, it's like a snowball effect. You'll start seeing them everywhere. And it's, it's really kind of cool once you open your eyes to it. So where can people get in touch with you? So I'm actually in the process of doing like a soft relaunch of my personal site. Um, and I'm trying to make that a hub for all my writing, my work with o for You, and some of my professional and conceptual design work. If you want to check that out, you can head to DerekJHorn.com. And that's D-E-R-E-K J. H-O-R-N.com. And I'm also on Instagram at dj.horn. If you want a healthy dose of celebrity memes in your feed, along with some uh, design nuggets from around New York and beyond, give me a follow. And if you or your company want to learn more about getting involved with Out for Undergrad, and I hope you do, uh, you can head to outforundergrad.org. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. Is the undesigned world inspiring your work? We'd love to get your feedback or thoughts on this topic. Go to thisishtd.com and register to join our Slack channel to join in the discussion. We use our Slack channel to shape future episodes of the podcast as well as sharing interesting design-related content every day. I'm Chi Ryan. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Mm